Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario government has released details of controversial Bill 7, which they say will create more beds and better care in hospitals. However, what kind of effect is this going to have on seniors in the long-term care homes who have already struggled during the pandemic? We'll talk about it. Canadian and international experts warn that right-wing extremism is becoming increasingly mainstream, the pandemic serving as an accelerant in the process. We'll talk about that report and the implications of it. And should live golfers be able to play at the Ryder Cup? Joe Callahan, journalist for the Toronto Star and The Guardian, will join us to get into that debate. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots of uh, action at Queen's Park yesterday. I know they, they basically broke up until the end of October, but uh, before they did, a couple of the ministers got together and started talking about Bill 7 once again. Uh, and that's, of course, the one that's going to relocate uh, people from hospitals into long-term care facilities. Uh, they came up with some of the details about that yesterday, and there's been a lot of pushback. Uh, here's a, a little bit from uh, the health minister, Sylvia Jones. We're very hopeful and confident that we are going to be getting able to we are going to be able to have uh, 400 alternative level of care patients placed in community. But I don't want to put a hard number on it because the conversations with families have to happen first. And those matching uh, opportunities need to be part of the conversation to make sure families needs and patients needs are respected. And that's what we're, we will be doing with our hospital partner. So uh, I don't know where the consultation is going to happen. Uh, they did mention, I guess, more than once during this, that they wanted to do this in a compassionate way. Uh, I'm not so sure that uh, that is going to be able to happen if you're going to move somebody so far away from their family and, and caregivers and loved ones. Uh, Colin DeMello, of course, is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He joins us here on the program to uh, talk to us about it. Colin, thanks so much for the time. Uh, this is I know they broke now until uh, sometime after the municipal elections, I guess the third week of October, but they went up with a bang yesterday with these two ministers, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, we were all waiting for the details of this legislation, which in and of itself was controversial. I think the government really kind of fanned the flames of that controversy yesterday uh, because, you know, the details really do make it seem as if, you know, somebody's grandparent might be coerced to go into a long-term care home as opposed to being given the option to go to a long-term care home. The province is basically saying that, you know, they're they're hiring care coordinators. Those coordinators have the right to go into a patient's file and to try to match them with an open bed in a long-term care home that would be able to take care of whatever complex needs they may have. And so once they find the suitable home, the care coordinator would basically admit the patient or, you know, sign them up, enroll them, enlist them into this long-term care home. And at the same time, the doctor would discharge them from the hospital. So that means they're now, you know, in limbo, essentially. They're not a patient at the hospital. They're a, pa a resident at a long-term care home. But what if they don't want to go to that long-term care home? What if that long-term care home is Orchard Villa in Pickering, in which... A lot of people died during the first couple of waves of COVID-19. Well, the province says if you don't go, then you're going to face a, a daily fee of about $400, which would be charged to you by the hospital. And so a senior citizen on a fixed income, maybe they only have old age security and their pension. You know, it's a pretty tough choice to make. And the choice obviously seems pretty clear that they would have to then move to a long term care home or see their bank account drained to the tune of about $12,000 every single month. 
And, and the other element to that, I know there's so many variables, but these are realistic variables. I mean, you know, these are not just in the hypothetical. Uh, you've got somebody in a, who's in a, a precarious situation like that with their health. Uh, they want to be close to family and friends and loved ones. I mean, because as, as you've reported many times, especially during the long-term care uh, fiasco that happens during the pandemic, uh, they rely on those family and friends for part of their care because there just aren't enough staff to go around. So basically what this would do is move them, well, depending on where they're living, anywhere from 50 to 120 kilometers away from those those loved ones. Yeah, you, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, long-term care homes and, and personal support workers, uh, the unions will tell you that, you know, the caregivers, the family caregivers actually make up a significant amount of time um, in terms of the, the actual care provided to a patient. In some cases, it could be 50% of the care provided to a patient might actually come from a caregiver, right? Like the, the PSW will take care of the, what their immediate needs are, but then some some other um, you know extracurricular needs might be taken care of uh, by a family member. And so this legislation would allow a patient to be moved uh, about 70 kilometers from their home community. So that means essentially a patient could be moved from the University Health Network in downtown Toronto all the way to a long-term care home in Hamilton. That's about 70 kilometers away. And for family members, you know, some are arguing that that's a very long distance to actually commute. And some might not be able to afford the commute, the gas uh, and the mileage to go from Toronto to Hamilton or 70 kilometers away. In northern Ontario, it's even further. It's about 150 kilometers away from a home community. So that that would mean, you know, you're dedicating basically a day to drive there and to drive back. You would have to take a day off. So, you know, many are making the argument that this is um, you know, perhaps a bit heavy handed on behalf of the government. Um, you know, this is a longstanding issue, though, and the government has been trying to tackle this issue. Multiple governments have been trying to tackle this issue of alternate level of care patients in hospital beds. They don't need acute care. They should be either at home or in a long term care facility. But by remaining in hospital, waiting for a placement in a long term care home, they're taking up a, a precious bed that might be needed for a more acute patient. And that's what's contributing to hallway medicine. It's a complex it, issue, but the government's is. solution might in and of itself be creating more problems for itself. Well, and you've seen this a thousand times, and I, as I have uh, myself, too. when governments do policies like that, a lot of the time they don't think down the road. Uh, has anybody thought about or raised the possibility of the, the impact of the, these extra patients, uh, residents, whatever you want to call them, are going to have on those long-term care facilities, that, which, as you mentioned, are already understaffed and in some cases undertrained uh, for this. All of a sudden, a lot of these places are going to be run at capacity, and you have to wonder the impact that's going to have on that facility. Are we just moving the problem someplace else? Well, and that's where this care coordinator kind of comes in, right? There is this assessment period in which, A, they have to assess is the long-term care home equipped both staffing-wise, bed-wise, and with the proper resources to be able to handle the patient? Um, and and on the other end of things, you know, is does this suit the patient's needs to a degree? As an example, um, you know, if, if the uh, long-term care home uh, is not a Francophone-supported long-term care home, well, does it make sense to move a French-speaking patient to that long-term care home and, and they might not be supported? So there is, the government says, a lot of considerations taken into into this, including things like faith, including things like, um, you know, being close to a, a, a language um, of choice of the patient. But ultimately, 
you know, this is a, a this is kind of like Jenga in the entire healthcare system. And the government is trying to figure out where exactly to put all of these puzzle pieces. And you're right. I mean, you know, there could be certain cases where patients could be moved into a long term care home and they may not be able to handle them in the long run if there are a lot a big volume of patients. That also begs the question, what happens to those in community who are looking to get into that long term care home? Who's prioritized for this spot? Um, you're right. I mean, we may hear down the road some issues pertaining to this. And I think the, the most important thing to know here is the University Health Network has long used this tool of charging patients if they refuse to leave a long-term care uh, a hospital bed and go into a long-term care home. It's not new. The key here is that some hospitals use this rarely, maybe once, maybe twice a year. The government, though, is now giving hospitals the ability to use this more frequently as the, as the tool to basically evict patients from hospitals um, if they are better suited in a long-term care home. So the frequency of the use, Bill, I think that might definitely increase as a result of this policy. Well, the other element to this, too, and I'm, I'm going to go back a little a, a bit a couple of years ago. Um, Back in my days when I was on municipal council and worked on social services, and, and there was a problem at this, not as extreme as it is now, but when the patient was ready to be discharged, when they said, look at, you know, the, it, we, you have to move on, they were usually given a choice of two or three places uh, to which they could go. And, uh, you know, the, so, so there was some choice here. Uh, you know, you can't go to that facility, uh, but, but you may be able to go to this one. Uh, you're not getting a choice here. Uh, they're basically telling you where to go. And, and I guess the other element to this, uh, and again, from your reporting uh, during the crisis with the, the long-term care facilities uh, and the overcrowding and everything else, uh, there's a marked difference between the public and the private uh, level of care in these facilities. Uh, can you turn one down and say, I don't want to go to that facility because it's it's a, a, a private facility and, and I don't know if I'm going to get the same level of care? I, I don't think you get that, do you? The, you there's, there's no gimmies here, are there? Not with this law, no. So, so uh, you, you know, previous to this law, um, once you've been determined, the, the hospital determines that you're an ALC patient, an alternate level of care patient, um, what, what they basically do is the, the family and the patient works out a list of five long-term care homes that you want to go to. You then put on the priority list. But if there's no space in those homes, you sit and wait in this hospital uh, for uh, a placement to actually open up. Under this law, you, you don't really have a choice. The choice is very binary. Once they've um, found a suitable home for you to go to, the choice is A, you go to that home and move all your belongings there, or B, you're going to be charged a daily rate to stay in the hospital. That is, as the government explained it to us yesterday, that is the binary choice that patients in, long -term, in, in hospital will soon be facing if they've been deemed to be an alternate level of care patient. There is no choice. The only choice is go or pay the fee. What kind of pushback are you hearing on this? I mean, clearly the opposition parties are upset about this, as expected, and I can understand that. Uh, but we've heard from some of the other folks, the advocates for long-term care, uh, Vivian Stamatopoulos and some others, have been quite vocal about this. Uh, what, what did you hear after the announcement was made, Colin? Well, there is a lot of concern about the idea of the, uh, the coercion element of this, right? Um, you know, when the government first introduced this legislation, and mind you, you know, between the time they passed it and between the time they actually introduced it, it was about two weeks. So we had very little time to actually examine what the consequence of this bill would be. And um, the regulations were only 
revealed yesterday after the legislation had already been passed into law. So there wasn't really a lot of time to examine the consequences here. But the coercion element of it is really what's raising a lot of concerns. You know, we've been the, the conversation about ALC has been happening for a long time in Ontario. And there have been a lot of, um, you know, policy measures in terms of how to really uh, alleviate this problem. And those policies have really been, okay, increase the number of beds in hospitals, increase the number of staffing in hospitals. That's how you can deal with the issue. Or even in some cases, create overflow hospitals so that you can move these patients there for, for the time being. One was created in the GTA. Uh, but now it's the idea of, you know, does your grandmother or grandfather have a choice in this matter? And I think that largely is the concern. Where is the consent coming into all of this. The government says they will not physically restrain a patient. They will not physically move them against their will. But beyond that, everything is done without really the consent of the patient. They don't need the consent of the patient to go through their charts, to um, discharge them, to enroll them in a long-term care home. The patient really can say no the entire time and uh, this care coordinator hired by the province can continue uh, to act on behalf of this patient. The only thing the patient can say no to is actually being physically restrained and physically moved. But if they don't move, they're facing this charge. And I think that's where the the, the bulk of the opposition really seems to lie. I'm, I'm just wondering what the patient's mental health in situations like this. I, I mentioned in my commentary on CHML earlier this morning, uh, because the rationalization part of it anyway from the health minister was, look, at these nursing homes have recreational and social activities. So it's like saying, okay, we're going to move you to a, a, a community that you're not familiar with, into a, a place that you're not familiar with, away from your family and friends and your loved ones. But, uh, you know, you get to play, you know, bingo uh, with, with the other people in here. It's, it's hardly a, a point. I'm, I'm just wondering what the long-term impact it's going to have on those people being moved like that. Yeah, and it also raised the question among some advocates of those uh, for, for senior citizens about uh, whether or not they have the cognition to actually understand what might be going on. Um, you know, many patients in long-term care um, suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's, and, and they may not have the cognition to understand exactly uh, what, may, what might be happening. And those patients who are determined to be ALC in hospital might also be suffering from some of the similar ailments, dementia or um, Alzheimer's. And that is another question about whether or not, you know, they can actually give consent or whether their family is giving consent on their behalf or declining consent on their behalf. Um, it, it really seems like the province is, you know, trying to fix an issue and, and free up at least in the interim 400 beds in hospitals. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can't talk about the problem in hospitals without trying to find the solutions. Whether or not everyone agrees with the solution is an entirely different matter. One of the things that's hot happening in hospitals right now, Bill, is the wait time to get from the ER into a bed. The average wait time in Ontario right now is about 20 hours. In fact, it's shorter to drive from Toronto to Disney World in Florida than it would be to actually get a hospital bed um, in Ontario on average. And, and so the, the government is looking to solve that issue and free up hospital beds that are needed for the immediate um, concern of the patient who might be coming into the emergency room. Whether or not this is the solution, you know, time, I guess, will ultimately tell. 
Well, it's uh, an issue that's not going to go away anytime soon, as you say, and there's going to be a lot of repercussions. Uh, we'll look forward to you reporting on this in the, uh, the days and weeks ahead, Colin. Thanks so much for this today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News, uh, with uh, his perspective on what's going on at Queens Park. And I, we get this. It is a complex problem, and we understand that. Uh, but uh, you have to wonder what the impact it's going to have on those people themselves, the ones who are being transferred. And I don't hear too many people talking about that, and that's unfortunate. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right-wing extremism is becoming increasingly mainstream with the COVID-19 pandemic serving as an accelerant to that process. Uh, Canadian and international experts uh, warned about this on Tuesday. This is all part of actually uh, a conference that's going on uh, with uh, put on by the U.S.-based Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. And it's being held in Ottawa this year. I think it's the first time it's ever been in Canada. Uh, not quite sure what the rationale for holding it up here is, but uh, we'll find out from our next guest. Phil Gorski, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's security program and, of course, a former CSIS analyst and author. Uh, Phil, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for having some time for us today. My pleasure, Bill. How are you today, sir? I'm well. Um, uh, forgive the cynicism, but are they holding this conference in Ottawa right now because of, uh, of the extremism uh, increases that we've seen and, and, the, and the, the truckers' protests, etc.? I mean, it seems to be fertile ground for this right now. I don't know if it's something we should be proud of, but it's, I'm glad they're, they're here anyway. Well, yeah, yes and no. I, I think there's a lot of politics behind this, Bill. You, you, you noted that it's an American institution that's holding it up here, and there's no question that our American friends have an awful lot to deal with in this regard. But I will point out an interesting piece I just came across literally minutes ago, Bill, where there's a report coming out of the FBI that many people in the who work for the FBI say, and I quote, the white supremacy threat is overblown. Uh, and it's So it's a political thing that's going on down there. And there's pressure on the Bureau to look at things and investigate things that might not be real. So, you know, Bill, we and I, we and I have talked about this at, at, at length. There is a right-wing problem in Canada, absolutely. But I begin to wonder, it gets so much attention these days. And my, my basic question to people is, um, where are all the attacks if this thing is such a great threat to Canada? Because I'm not seeing them. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I haven't seen that story yet. I'll certainly look it up when we finish our conversation here. Uh, but it's, you know, juxtapose that against the fact that his boss, the, the head of the FBI, uh, says it's the number one threat in the United States, at least when he appeared before Congress a few months ago, he did anyway. Uh, so I, I don't know whose perspective to buy in here. As, as always, I guess the, uh, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle here. I, I think so. And, you know, when you work for the FBI or, or CSIS or the RCMP or whatever, what you want to have happen is an independence to investigate where, you know, where your intelligence and where your information tells you to go. What you don't want to have happen is for politicians who have some kind of axe to grind or some kind of you know, cause they want to support to be directing you on what to look at and what not to look at. Again, I, I think that, you know, we have very competent services here in Canada, CSIS, where I used to work, as you noted in your introduction, the RCMP. If they are seeing through their investigations that this is a threat, they're going to investigate it. And in the worst case scenario, where someone intends to use, you know, plan an act of violence, there'll be arrests and charges later. And we can go to court and see exactly what happens. But I, I really worry when I see nothing but this particular part of the terrorism spectrum being uh, talked about and emphasized in Canadian media and to like, almost to the absence of everything else. And I keep asking myself, is this the only threat that we're faced with right now? The other thing, of course, too, Bill, that you and I have talked about at, at quite some length in the past is you can't equate all the idiocy going on online with people you know, posting stupid stuff 
and the possibility of that morphing into violence is I, you know, when I worked at CSIS on, on Islamist extremism for 15 years, the vast, vast majority of morons who, who say things in chat rooms never do a damn thing in the real world. So let's not equate stupidity online with the possibility of violence or rather the probability of violence in the real world. Well, and and you've made that distinction. I think it's important to do that. Uh, that uh, I, I don't even want to attach a percentage to it, but an awful lot of the people that will go onto these pages and these websites and maybe even contribute to them in some way, shape, or form, uh, you know, they may talk violence. They may talk about extremist attitudes and, and, and mindsets about some of these things. Uh, but we don't see too many examples of it. And I don't want to say none because, you know, we remember our, our listeners in London, I know they're going through the trial yes. right now that – uh, heinous activity, of course, where the guy with the truck ran over a whole family. Uh, you know, the murder of Nathan Cirillo up in Ottawa uh, a few years ago. I mean, th those are extremist actions. I, I guess the question, though, in in a situation like this, Phil, uh, how do you know one from another? I mean, how do you know which one of those people is just going to sit down there in his basement all day long on computer, or is that going to act on it? And and oftentimes we don't find out about this until after the fact, after they have tried to act on it. I, uh, and, and that can be awfully frustrating because you don't know where it's coming from next. If I had an answer to that question, Bill, I'd be a very, very wealthy Canadian. Um, we struggled with that. And in how to put this, you're only as good as your intelligence and you're only as good as what your investigations show. But, you know, we don't have any crystal balls any more than anybody else does. So we know what extremism looks like we know what planning an act of terrorism looks like we know what fundraising looks like and you know if you have enough resources in place and you have them in, in the right places your investigations will show that but we shouldn't be under any illusions that there are magicians that cease to the rcmp or, or hamilton police or toronto police whatever that can you know indefinitely and um you know without any mistakes to you know separate what we call the the, the talkers from the walkers um, we do a good job, but there's there simply is no way, no formula that I've seen. And I'm, and I'm very distrustful when people say they've got the answer to this, that there's any easy algorithm you can apply to say, you know, Bill Kelly's just a, a talker, whereas Phil Gursky's the guy that's actually going to do it. Again, I, I think we do a really good job at stopping the attacks. We've stopped many attacks. Certainly in my time at CSIS, we stopped many major attacks, like the Toronto 18 back in the mid-2000s. But you're never going to stop them all, Bill. And and the, and the unfortunate reality when you work in security, intelligence, and law enforcement is that from the public's perspective, you're only as good as your last failure. So if you don't predict the guy that's going to kill Nathan Cirillo or run over the family in London, you're seen as incompetent. And when people don't realize how many cases you have going on simultaneously, your limited resources, and the fact that you only have so much information to work on. So, I mean, I, I, I cut some slack to, to our protectors. Being an ex-one, I guess I'm biased. But unfortunately, um, we're nowhere near to having that kind of system, Bill, where we can reliably say person A is not going to do anything whereas person B is going to. Well, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, uh, you, you can track this and you do, and, and these say agencies do. And, and you're right, from you know local police right on up through to the CSIS and RCMP and, and the five eyes with the assistance we're getting from our, our allies at the same time. But I, 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 I'm frustrated, and I'm sure everybody in law enforcement is frustrated, Phil, because there is no way that I can conceive of right now that you can try to anticipate that some guy's going to rent a, a van and, and start driving down the sidewalks of Young Street uh, just for the sake of killing people. It, but it happened. Uh, you, you can't predict that unless somebody actually says, I'm going to do it at noon tomorrow. Uh, you might be able to, if you could, you know, 
intercept something like that, but the chances of that are pretty rare too. Uh, sometimes these things just happen. And, and, and even when you say it in that manner, it kind of sounds like, oh, well, that's just life. It's not. It's terrible and it's tragic. But as you say, they can't be everywhere at every time. And you can't be looking over the shoulder of everybody who holds extremist views. Well, if we did, people would complain about the, the police state we have here and the surveillance state. You know, I worked for CSC, so Communication Security Establishment, which is signals intelligence, before I joined CSIS. And we were accused of spying on Canadians, which, of course, is not what CSC does. No, your points are well taken, Bill. Uh, sometimes, you know, things happen. And again, that, that's not being dismissive. That's not saying, oh, well, it's it's just it's the reality. And as good as your investigations are and as good as your human sources and agents are and as good as your surveillance teams are, you can't watch everyone. Well, actually, you can watch everyone, Bill. If you're the East German state of the 1980s and 1990s, you remember that, when mm-hmm. the East German Stasi basically had files on every single citizen, uh, you know, in East Germany at the time. I don't think Canadians want that. And I think the price that we have to pay for not having a pervasive, all-inclusive surveillance system in a country like Canada is that, first of all, we we, we preserve our democracy and freedom, which we want. But the, the converse to that and the negative part to that is that you'll get your Nathan Cirillos and you'll get your Alec Manassians and things like that. Um, they're inevitable. But but again, I do want to stress to your listeners that they're relatively rare in this country. And in my you know my most recent book, you alluded to, The Peaceable Kingdom, where I look at terrorism dating back to Confederation, terrorism is a very, very infrequent phenomenon in Canada. And, and that's partly because of the country we are. And partly because we have good security services and law enforcement. But no, nobody should be under any illusion that our our, our protectors are going to stop every single one. Any more, they're going to stop every every you know um, grocery store holdup bill or every drunk driver that kills somebody. It's simply not on the cards to have that in a country like Canada. I know one of the speakers of this forum that we were just talking about, uh, Professor Stephanie Carvin. She's been on the show many times uh, from Carleton University, uh, and and she. I think, you know, we use the same premise that there's a lot of hate on, on the internet and on social media. Uh, but her concern, in, I guess, in her presentation to the conference, uh, was she's concerned about how it's being focused oftentimes on gender-based violence and anti-transgender activity and, and motivating people to join some of these far-right groups uh, and spreading those, those, those you know, messages of hate. Um, and and that's, that seems to be part of the problem. I mean, the, the internet right now is safe haven for an awful lot of these people. It is. And as a consequence, a lot more pressure has to be uh, brought onto things like Facebook or Meta, whatever they're calling themselves these days, or Twitter, or the various chat rooms, that if if material is being posted on your platform that clearly is hateful in nature or advocates violence, it must be removed. But then again, there, there too, Bill, you run into a real problem. I mean, this is a spectrum. And at what point does your opinion get interpreted as hate i mean you know you think it'd be black and white but unfortunately it's multiple shades of gray and for you know so i i can understand the the clamor and the calls for these companies to do more online and they should but do we really want to put censorship and allowing certain views to be taken down or not allowed to be put in the hands of these companies again i i i I think there's some obvious material that we all agree upon should not be there but there's equally a lot of material that well, we could disagree about in terms of how serious it is or whether or not it's truly hateful in nature versus expressing an opinion. So again, I'm not dismissing the hateful stuff, Bill. That stuff should be taken down, but it's not as easy as that. Well, let's uh, 
draw our conversation into a real life experience uh, because just a, yesterday, I guess it was, uh, the Toronto spa killer pled guilty to murder and uh, that sword attack that, uh, that that happened some time ago. Terrible man. And uh, the incel inspired attack on the Toronto mas- massage parlor. This was two years ago, of course, just to remind our listeners about this. Uh, and, and sadly, you know, when the police finally arrested him, brought him back to the station for questioning, uh, he cited the very example you and I were just talking about, you know, the, the deadly van attack as inspiration. So the stuff is out there, and you're right, 99% of the time, people are going to look at that and say, well, that's a pile of crap. But there's that 1% who's going to look at that and say, yeah, yeah, I, I got to do something about that, as this guy did. Uh, and and again, the same motivation, that this, this incel-inspired thing. But how do you identify that? And how do you anticipate what they may or may not do? Yeah, again, you're, you always ask the great questions, Bill. I just want to point out that Alec Manassan, he was the guy in Young Street back in I believe it was yeah. 2018. He was not actually an incel. The judge, the judge found in his case that he made that stuff up for notoriety purposes. So what I find fascinating is the young offender in the Toronto case in 2020, the spa killing you alluded to, cited Manassian uh, as an incel for inspiration when Manassian himself wasn't even an incel. So the guy got it wrong from the get-go. But again, I, I think the bottom line here is that he was probably on no one's radar. He probably wasn't. Uh, he was a young offender. He was 17 at the time of the attack. He probably wasn't being followed by Toronto police. Nobody knew about him. And yet he carries out an act. I, but, you know, even there, I, I take some issue with the Crown immediately charging him with terrorism when, to me, it was a, it was murder. And he pleaded guilty to first degree murder. He didn't plead guilty to terrorism, by the way. And it may have been misogynist in nature because, because of what he who he targeted. But I think we have to be really careful with throwing the T word around to all these types of things. And the, the, you know, the, the the question that I saw in their story was, he's pleaded guilty. He'll 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 serve serious time for first degree murder. Uh, the Crown may decide to pursue terrorism charges. And I'm my my question is, well, why? He's already pleaded guilty to murder. What's the point of wasting taxpayers' money on, on more trials to prove something else when you've already got a, a significant verdict? But I think you know, going back to your earlier point on this. Yeah, these people are inspired. And I certainly saw it in my time at CSIS. People would look at what happens around the world. The um, You remember the the um, plotted Victoria bill back in 2013 by a convert couple? Uh, they were inspired by the Boston Marathon bombing in April of that year. And they built mm-hmm. pressure cooker bombs very similar to the ones they planted on the legislature lawn in, in Victoria on Canada Day 2013. So yeah, the so the internet plays, I guess, a dual role, not just being a, um, a sounding board for all these hateful messages, but also one where people derive inspiration from what from others have done and seem to seek to emulate them, which which appears to have happened in the spa killing in 2020 in Toronto. Uh, and just to wrap it up, because we're just about out of time here, as we <laughs> oftentimes do in these conversations, Phil, uh, if, if you think that, that, that law enforcement needs to be more diligent, you know, I, I saw the email from somebody in the, the Toronto Star editorial section say, you know, this has got to stop, you know, do something about this. Uh, it's a matter of resources. Uh, and, and are you willing to do that as a taxpayer, simply say, okay, we've got to direct more money or maybe new money uh, to some of these agencies so they, they can do you know a more intense job in situations like that. But they're, they're strapped just like every other government is these days. 100%. And we're not that far gone or far beyond, Bill, that remember to fund the police movement in the wake of what happened oh, in yeah. the States? A lot it's of people said, we, you know, let's take money away from the police. Well, guess what happens? You take money away from the police. You get fewer resources, you get fewer investigations, and you get the bad guys succeeding more often than not. So, no, let's not defund the police. Let's let's revisit the way we do policing. But for heaven's sake, let's not take resources away from them. And you'll see, I, know I just read an article in The Economist about you know the crime rates in the United States, Bill. Violence is soaring in the States. And a lot of people are kind of questioning, do we really want to defund the police here? Anyhow, it, it's a great conversation. And you're right, my friend. 
we need many hours to talk about these things, but um, there's always so much to talk about when it comes to national security and public safety. Well, we'll have to do it in uh, segments like this one. Uh, Phil, always a pleasure. Thanks for this today. My pleasure, Bill. Have a nice day. You too. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. And of course, uh, he's a former CSIS analyst. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. More golf this weekend. Um, and this time they're over in Europe, of course, uh, in uh, just outside of Rome and the Italian Open's going on. Uh, a number of the players there are, are still talking about next year, though. The Ryder Cup is going to be next year. And, and the question for the last number of weeks, if not months now, has been, well, who's going to be on the, those teams? Uh, because a lot of the players on the tour simply say, look, if, if you're on that other side, if you're with the, the live people, we don't want you. Uh, that's all there is to it. Others seem to be, well, I don't know if caving in is the right word, but maybe a little more flexible about this. So what kind of a rift is this causing and where is this going? I want to bring uh, Joe Callahan into the conversation. Joe, of course, is a journalist for the Toronto Star and The Guardian uh, who covers uh, professional sports on the international level. Joe, great to have you back on the show. I hope you're doing well these days. Glad to be with you, Bill. There's, uh, it just seems like golf, just the drama never ends right now. Well, and, and uh, I think one of the main players here, uh, center stage, of course, once again, is Rory McIlroy, who just says flat out no. I, I think the quote was, I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, I don't want those guys playing in the Ryder Cup. Uh, there's no equivocation there, is there? No, there isn't. And I think from the jump, one of the f- most striking things for me, having covered a couple of Ryder Cups, <clears throat> is that isn't it the Americans who are, who are supposed to be the team who fall out and have bad chemistry? The Europeans are supposed to be kind of togetherness is usually their strength. And here we are kind of a year out. And much like it has done for every other aspect of golf, the uh, the live golf has kind of caused this kind of fissure in the European team. There's a lot to it, Bill, but what's true today or yesterday when Rory was speaking and uh, has been as true uh, for the last four or five months is that Rory is saying the quiet parts out loud and he's saying it before kind of the rest row before him, row behind him. Um, And, you know, one thing that kind of I actually thought back to was uh, on the Wednesday of the Canadian Open, when up in up in St. George's there, uh, in, just outside Toronto, um, yeah. you know, all this live stuff was breaking and Rory was in the pro-am with kind of four, four, uh, four regular Joes and uh, he was enjoying himself. He had kind of had spent a lot of his week already kind of talking about live. This was the same week that live were having their first tournament. And I, I followed Rory that day and around the eighth or ninth hole, uh, just off Islington Avenue, Luke Donald kind of ducked in, um, to kind of tee off and start on the ninth hole, Rory bumped into Luke, and Rory let his uh, his playing partners go ahead, um, and he actually huddled with Luke Donald, and they spoke for quite a while, like fifteen minutes, twenty minutes. I think Rory even skipped a hole. They're very close, um, the two of them, and you know Luke Donald has stepped in as the new Ryder Cup captain uh, after um, <clears throat> Henrik Stenson was you know, the original captain was also poached to live. So I don't think Rory would be saying this if it was something that Luke Donald disagreed with. I think this is another example of Rory being out there in front and being willing to, you know, this is this kind of role that he has taken on very much as kind of the spokesman and the defender of kind of golf, you know? 
But is uh, Luke Donald seems to be playing the diplomat here. I mean, his his official quote was, well, "We're in limbo," uh, and he's referring, I guess, mm-hmm. to the court cases that are pending. Uh, and yep. he says that's going to be the guide on this thing. But I, you're right. I think I, I think Rory is being the mouthpiece for all of them. I mean, even last week, Joe, as you said, mm-hmm. Shane Lowry won the last week uh, with a great tournament, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. his his post tournament comments were, were just as acerbic. You know, like I, we I won this for first of all for me. Yes, I wanted to win, but for the good guys, uh, meaning the people. PGA Tour. So, I mean, it, it's on everybody's mind, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, <clears throat> I think that the influence of the kind of the Ryder Cup core in that is a huge part of it. Like, if you look at Wentworth last week, it was a cracking tournament, even with the disruption with the Queen's death, etc. And yeah, that Sunday of kind of Lowry going out in front and McElroy chasing him down. And yeah, sure, Lowry's kind of, this feels like a win for the good guys. It was really kind of the standout moment. But there was something there, Bill, that really stuck in the craw, um, and that was Sergio Garcia. So Sergio yeah. was among a, a few other live golfers who took up, who took places in that event. You know, this was an event that they were allowed to play in, um, and that really kind of irked a lot of the guys, a lot of the kind of core European guys like Rory, like Shane, uh, John Ram was another. But so Sergio yeah. played, and Sergio stunk up the place, shot an awful 76 or 77 in the first round. Then there was a slight disruption with the Queen passing, and Sergio just sacked it off. He um, he quit, he withdrew from the tournament after one round, and then was spotted on the Saturday at the U- University of Texas Longhorns game, college football. Now, the thing here is that the first alternate for the tournament was a span another Spanish guy, uh, Alfredo Heredia. He is right on the cusp of losing his tour card in Europe, and had he made the cut, he played and made the cut at Wentworth, he would have survived. His kind of livelihood for next year would have been intact. And so instead, Sergio took his place, played for one round, played terribly, walked away from it all. And that really did stick in the kind of in the throats of a lot of the guys who didn't think that these live guys should have been there from the get go. Which only deepens the, the the rift between them. And and the other thing too, and, and Lauer's comments, I think, echoed uh, what Rory was saying through the course of the week as well, is uh, they didn't want anybody from Lyft to win that tournament. I mean, okay, bad enough that you guys are going to let them in there, but there's no bloody way we're going to let them win this. Um, and that's that's why I'm, I'm sure these guys, both Rory and Shane, were so heartened to see that they were the, at the top of the leaderboard at the end of it. Yeah, like if, if you look at it kind of, Rory really stepped up that week at, in, in St. George's and he really wanted to win and give the PGA Tour that kind of standout win the first week of the live event. He did that. And this week, look, you know, we've myself and yourself have spoken about Shane Lowry. Great player. Love the way he plays golf. Love the way he carries himself. Yeah. He actually really badly needed a win. It was his first professional win since 2019. But it meant mm-hmm. more to him to kind of make that statement. And, you know, I, I think to... Uh, in terms of how this again relates to the Ryder Cup, I think that you know almost every prism in golf now has live and the Saudis kind of blinding through it. And I genuinely think Rory, in in that quote that you use, Bill, you know, if he said it a hundred times, Rory and others who have who haven't yet spoken their mind but probably will, they just they're desperate for one aspect of golf that is just free from this, free from this conversation. Um, and I think that you know, live took at from the jump took this kind of aging core of european stars that yeah there's they'd won a couple of majors between them i'm thinking lee westwood i'm thinking westwood didn't win a major i'm thinking westwood i'm thinking sergio ian poulter even gmac gray mcdowell you know Mm -hmm. that four really they made their names as golfers in the Ryder cup and 
you know, it's kind of their exploits in the Ryder Cup that likely got them onto the live tour. Again, they're at a stage of their career where this was a no brainer for them as far as they saw it in terms of money. But that kind of side of things is really kind of stuck, you know, to, to, to the kind of core of European players and not just the Europeans. I, I don't know if you saw the footage of, you know, Billy Horschel, Billy Horschel is usually a quiet guy, but there was footage of him on the putting green on the Wednesday at Wentworth and really animated with Ian Poulter, uh, the body language. Yeah, expert I saw that. yeah, yeah. Really interesting. You know, and so that's an American kind of having to go, you know, obviously that wasn't, say, Ryder Cup specific, but, you know, you have those kind of, you know, real veterans of Ryder Cup who are kind of backboning the live tour from the jump. And I think that kind of really grates with Rory. Well, and, and both Horschel and Polder kind of downplayed it later on. Like, oh, we were just kidding around, but it sure didn't look like it while it was happening. No, no, definitely not. And, I, you know, I was struck by even, uh, I was watching a little bit of the, uh, the Sky Sports coverage from the UK on the Sunday, um, even kind of some of the good shots that were hit by the live guys on the on the broadcast seemed to be kind of like, oh, that was a nice shot, and then you know they kind of quickly move away from it. Um, it does seem like you know they were very much unwelcome guests there that week. Well, I, and I know Luke Donald says they're going to wait for the court cases. I, I don't know what they're going to say in court here, Joe, but it's not going to settle this thing. I mean, the the, the this is like a civil war right now. Mm-hmm. It is. And, you know, it's it's been going on like, is this probably our seventh or eighth conversation with it, Bill? And each time it's, it's it's been a conversation that has been kind of sparked by something big and something new happening and another big new development. But we've been chatting about this for, you know, three, four, five months. And I think we'll be chatting about it for at least another 12 months. You know, like you say, 12 months from now, the Ryder Cup is happening in Italy. Um, and it's a, it's a big deal for Italy to have it. It's a big deal for continental Europe to have it. Um, I did mention to you last time that, you know, the part that I felt that JP McManus, the Irish billionaire was playing in it. He has been a close counsel for yeah. both Rory and Tiger. He has a, he has a, a dog in the fight in the sense that the Ryder cup in 2027, it will be at his home course in Limerick in Ireland too. So, you know, the, the Ryder cup will definitely be front and center there as kind of, you know, this is something that they want to protect from, whatever about the other aspects of golf, they want to protect this part of it. And I know that, you know, last night, Rory and Luke Donald and a couple of the other kind of core European guys, I think Victor Hovland, uh, they all went for dinner and they kind of, Rory called it a kind of team bonding exercise, but I would say it's very much a kind of, here's our line. We're going to keep it. Obviously Luke Donald as the captain has look <laughs> a Ryder cup captain job is really you know, you're, you have to be a diplomat in lots of ways. The, the kind of the, the nuts and bolts of it aren't too hard. You know, it's a lot of diplomacy. It's almost an honorary role um, in lots of ways um, until the event itself. And so Luke is going to have to continue to be the diplomat. I feel like Rory is kind of setting the tone and kind of laying the line out there. And maybe the dinner last night was quite nice and some nice pasta and some nice wine, but I'm sure it was about kind of making sure that they're all clear and that they're all on message. We were talking earlier about about the, the personnel on this, and and there's been a kind of a changing in the guard on the PGA Tour. I mean, some of the great names, well, some of them, the Mickelsons and everything, of course, who have who've left now. Uh, but people have filled that void. You know, Scotty Scheffler just got named Golfer of the Year, and, and very mm-hmm. deservedly. Xander Shoffley. There's there's a whole long list of guys that are relatively new to the tour. Uh, that are fitting in quite nicely and filling those voids as those other guys age or, or decide that they're going to jump over to the other league. Is that happening in Europe too, Joe? 
It is to a certain degree. I wouldn't say it's happening to the degree that it is in the US. Uh, and I think case in point would have been the Ryder Cup last year, which was just an absolute landslide. Oh, yeah. Where, where, where so many of those guys you've just mentioned, let's throw Colin Morikawa in there as well, Bill, were just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, you know, what they what they did at Whistling Straits um, was, you know, they... You know, it, it was one of the darker moments of Pork Harrington's career as, as European captain. And I think that, you know, case in point here is uh, you've got Sergio, you've got Ian Poulter, you've got Lee Westwood, you've got Gray McDowell. They were all on the live tour now because their kind of professional relevancy and their kind of being contenders is over. That's a huge core. Let's say between those four in terms of Ryder Cup appearances, they're probably four in the top, ten, top 20 all time. And they've aged out. So it's been a bit slower for kind of um, newer ones coming through. But, you know, Victor Hovland would be one that, you know, uh, I think oh, last sure. year was his first. Lowry, that, <laughs> believe it or not, last year was his first Ryder Cup. And you, you saw how much it meant to him. You know, there's some of those guys that are just kind of sports mad. And the idea of playing on a team means so much to them. I think that this could indeed be kind of galvanizing for Europe. And like I said, from the very get-go, Europe were usually the team that didn't need galvanizing. But on the back of a pretty horrendous defeat, um, you know, I was interested to see too, they brought Thomas Bjorn in as an assistant uh, captain to Luke Donald. Thomas is kind of one of those veterans, a no-nonsense guy, really loved. I, I think that, you know, this could be kind of the start of something good for a kind of a new European core. Um but Rory will certainly be kind of the one that's still leading it. Yeah, well, and John Rahm's up in that number two. Yep, obviously. for sure, and, for okay, sure. Guys, traditionally, they've involved, as you say, the the, the Westwoods, the McDowells, the Molinari brothers from, from Italy, uh, yep. you know, all, usually on those teams. But uh, it's a lot of new faces. Listen, Joe, i got a couple minutes left. I, I want to just get your read uh, on uh, Roger Federer. Announced today that mm-hmm. he's going to step down after the, the Labor tournament coming up. He hasn't played a whole lot lately. He's been battling no. injuries. A part of that is age, certainly. We all know that. You know, you recover a lot easier when you're 21 than when you're 42. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, where do you, where do you rank him with this career? He's he was phenomenal. Uh, some calling him the, the the best male of all time. What, what what's your read on that? Um, I think it's a, it's a, it's it's one of those ones that depends kind of where where your heart lies because this era. So, of I, men's I, I reason, ten- just to put it in perspective, I mean, you and yeah. I are old enough. I remember watching Beyond Borg play, uh, right. and, and you know, uh, and I don't know. Federer was great, but Borg was on a different level. I think, like the, you know, the the one thing I would say is that, and, and this is true of every conversation, you know, the, the LeBron against Michael Jordan conversation. Yeah. Every you know, we're, we're having conversations around Aaron Judge and what he's doing this year, Bill. You know, I think it's it's very much you can kind of look at it through your own kind of prism and your own kind of lens. But I would say the fact that Federer did what he did, bridging the kind of Sampras Agassi era and then going into mm-hmm. Nadal and Djokovic, even Andy Murray, who I have a soft spot for, you know, Federer kind of, you know, he bridged a huge, a huge period of time and was just so good on so many surfaces. I think that's what sets him apart for me. And then the other thing that sets him apart for me is just how good he was to watch. I think that there's a lot of, you know, there's there's so much to to admire in Djokovic, in Nadal too. But Federer did it in a way that just elicited a different reaction from people. I don't know if you've ever read. Uh, I'm lucky enough to kind of teach journalism at a school in Ireland in the spring at the University of Limerick. And one of the first pieces I give to them uh, every spring for this kind of sports feature writing is David Foster Wallace a piece in the New York Times in 2006, which was about 
watching Roger Federer as a religious experience. <laughs> it's one of my favorite pieces of journalism. <laughs> I'd encourage everyone to read it. But those are the kind of emotions and feelings that elicited in him. Even in the piece The Guardian just put up there by Sean Ingle called Federer the greatest act of seduction tennis has ever seen. You know, it was very much a kind of this balletic kind of the way he moved the way he made you feel when he you know, hit some of his shots. I got to see him only the once, Bill. I watched him in Melbourne in 2011. Uh, second round match against Gilles Simon. That, uh, luckily for me, it went five sets. And, you know, you can be a bit flippant about these things and say, oh, it's a privilege to be there. But it's one that I go back to as, I'm so glad I was there. I'm so glad I got to see him. It's that kind of idea and that sensation of sport as experience. I've... You know, one of my colleagues at the Toronto Star, who's usually pretty level-headed, said he watched the vid- the retirement video and he was in tears. <laughs> you know, I think that that's the feeling that Federer has kind of given a lot of people. But, you know, that coming on the back of Serena is really a moment where tennis kind of separates from the then and the now. You know, I, I, I know we're kind of tight for time, but I think that Canada is very kind of well set up for the... What's, no, that's, yeah, the, make the, that the, point. I saw that in yeah. your email. Um, yeah, yeah we're, you know, we're in pretty good would, shape. Yeah, I think we're in pretty good shape. I, I was lucky enough to spend some time at the, the National uh, Training, the National Tennis Centre in Montreal kind of last October on the back of Layla and uh, Felix's successes in New, in New York. And, you know, look, tennis is uh, absolutely vexing kind of prospect of trying to bring someone up from their early teens and have them make it. There are so many things that can go wrong. But you know, this new wave that has kind of come. And look, they're already there. Bianca has already won a slam. Leila Fernandez has already been in a Grand Slam final. Um, Felix and uh, Chapo are already kind of there. But yeah. now the way is more clear. Now you've kind of, Serena has stepped aside. Roger is stepping aside. You have to think Nadal maybe won't be too far behind, but God knows we've counted him out too many times. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Canada is in good shape for kind of, be playing a big part in this next era but yeah i think we'll be sad that this era has come and gone absolutely joe it's always a a pleasure and a joy talking with you thanks so much for this today really appreciate it cheers bill good to chat you too joe callahan journalist for the toronto star and of course the guardian on the other side of the pond the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.